0: Our Father, as we come again to the Scriptures tonight and to the content of these early chapters of Genesis and their implications in our lives today, we ask that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts, draw their attention to the things that you want attention drawn to. We pray that you would give us, encourage us, and strengthen our faith that your Word is truth and that all truth flows from you. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, now we're continuing uh, on the event of the Noahic Covenant and we have in the last few evenings together, we've looked at this event as a, as the fourth one in our sequence. Remember we've shown this diagram again and again, that the four great events of early Genesis is the, uh, the creation, the fall, the flood, and the covenant. And these four events shape the rest of the scriptures. These four events basically give you the worldview that the rest of the Bible assumes is true. And the problem we have in our modern world, anybody who's gone to school more than two or three years knows very well that all of this is categorized as sheer mythology. It's a mark of a well educated person today to scoff at this particular background. The problem with doing that is that you doom the rest of the Bible. Because it is here where the great doctrines of who God is, who man is, what nature is all about, the whole issue of suffering and evil, the issue of judgment, salvation, and the flood. All of those issues are defined for us in this, in this section. So this is why when we come to the Noahic Covenant, we want to review what we learn out of this event. And you remember the first thing we learned that in order to have a covenant, which is unique to the Scriptures, remember, we always want to remember this, no other religion on the planet ever speaks of God making a public contract with his people. That is absolutely unique feature. And that's not an accident, because we said, and we said for the last two or three times, that in order to have a covenant, you have to have two parties speaking to one another, and in order for God to make a covenant, a covenant of the kind that He makes, you have to have somebody who is sovereign, who is omnipotent and has the divine attributes. Because otherwise, he could make a contract with a lesser God, and it would be a lesser contract. It would not be an absolute contract. So, we've emphasized the Noahic covenant, and we've said that that Noahic covenant speaks both to man and to nature. We've looked at nature, and we said that it gives a specific content of how God rules nature. Now, we abstractly found that out in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3 and 4, because in those chapters um, we had instances of declaration that God is omniscient, that he is omnipotent, that he is sovereign. But when you get into the Noahic Covenant, you actually have him signing a verifiable contract that physical universe, the geophysical universe, will be run with certain boundary conditions on it. It will not do certain things. There will not be a global flood on planet Earth. And we said that you can quickly infer from that promise that in order to keep that promise, God would have to control the movement of every astronomical body in the universe. Because obviously, for example, you had an asteroid getting loose, It passed by the gravitational field of an asteroid passing through by the planet Earth would cause global tides, so you'd have global flooding. So it's quite clear that in order to maintain the validity of that contract that God must be sovereign, he must be omnipotent, and so on. And we said that this doctrine of nature means that from the time of the flood until the time of the return of Christ, There are constraints on the universe. It has to operate in a more or less tranquil way. And we said that's a two-edged sword because it means that when we scientifically observe what is going on now, we can't run it backwards. We can't always go back in time and say, gee, I wonder what it was like before the flood, because before the flood we were under a different regime. We don't really know how God ruled geophysically in those days. So, that complicates this whole issue of getting past history, as we'll see in some of the appendices that we're going to cover uh, after the handout tonight. So, that's been our review of nature. Now we've come to man, and we've said that God, after the flood, reconstitutes the divine institutions. So, let's just, again, review that for a moment. Because in our society today the prevalent opinion is that these divine institutions aren't divine institutions. They are arbitrary conventions. So we listed them. We listed three of them. We said the first one is responsible dominion that man is given. And by that, remember, we said that man is constituted as the Lord of nature, little l. That man is the master of nature. And man can be an evil master, or he can be a good master, but he will always dominate. Because man was made to dominate. This is why cities are built. This is why machines are made. This is why inventions occur. This is why artists do their art. This is why musicians do their music. Man was made to have dominion and to produce. And he will do it evilly, or he will do it in a godly way, but he will always do it. And he will be judged by it. And we learned back there, this is the origin of economics, it's the origins of dollar values, it's the origin of pricing, it's all kinds of things come into this. Then we went on to the second one, which is marriage. God did not make Adam and Steve, God made Adam and Eve. And the point there is, is that we have a gender difference. And the gender difference was ordered in certain structure. And that's the structure. It's not arbitrary. It wasn't created by majority vote. It's not tradition. It is an institution that lines up with both genders. Then we had family. And we want to deal a little bit with that tonight because we want to move on to the fourth institution, which we want to talk about in detail. So let me just spend a few minutes on the family. Now, we, uh, the, the, the first family, obviously, Adam and Eve. But if you turn to your notes on page 95, We'll point out some things about the family after the flood. We said last time that this family is responsible for all of the races and nations today. And we said we don't know exactly what the family looked like, but obviously you have Noah, you have his wife, you have three of his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they have wives. And we pointed out, it's kind of elementary, but if you look at this, obviously, if all of these three sons are sons of this man and this woman, they obviously are genetically closely related to the man and wife. So a lot of the genetic differences were given through the women. And it's no accident that you can read in mythology a faint memory of Noah's family. It shows up in various mythologies in terms of what they call the great matriarchs. And tribes on many places of the earth have this tradition. And it's shown in art by the four colors. There's the white matriarch, the black matriarch, the red matriarch, and the yellow matriarch. And scholars puzzle over this and wonder, well, what is all this about? We don't know, except there appears to be a hint. And I'm not suggesting this is doctrine. I'm just saying it's a very interesting thing. There were four women that came out of that boat. And ancient history keeps talking about these four women. Now, were these the same four women? We don't know that, but it's it's plausible. And out of this, we have the nations. Now, we said in the notes that one of the things that we Christians often forget about Noah, we, we diminish this man, we forget that he was more than a survivor of the flood. Noah lived 360 years after the flood. What was he doing after the flood? Well, the destiny of Noah is given in Genesis 9 and 10. And nation after nation is is given there. Noah and his sons were nation builders, and we were said last week that the reason they could do the phenomenal things that they did, and the reason that they could could uh, could produce what they did in such a short time, was because of the unique longevity decline that was occurring in their time. We go back to this chart again. During that time period, for the first three or four or five generations after the Flood, something happened in Earth history that never happened again and never occurred before. Between this line, the Flood, and generations close to Abraham, do you notice something happening to that curve? It's declining rapidly. It was not declining before the Flood. After that, the curve flattens out, but in this period, there was a very tight decline in the curve. Now, it's amazing, this curve has been around since the Bible, and it's amazing that so few people have ever thought about the implications of that curve. The implications of that curve are enormous for understanding what went on and why civilization literally exploded so fast. And this has been a puzzle for students of history. Why, all of a sudden, you seem to go from an agrarian thing, or in the evolutionary idea of a gorilla and his bananas, up to building pyramids. How did we get all this knowledge so fast? And if you think about what was going on with this curve, you realize quickly that Noah, his three sons, in that first generation, lived way down into these generations. Whereas people born down here with this longevity were also dying at the same time. When you get down to this point in history, within a century or two, everybody died of that original group. Not only did the the grandparents die, the fathers died, the children died, everybody died. There was a rupture. And this is why this past seems so mysterious and why we can't unlock a lot of the mythologies and you say these were intelligent people, what do they mean by these pictographs and so forth? It's all lost because that whole generation, those whole three or four generations died and they all died simultaneously. And what was interesting was that the grandparents probably outlived their grandchildren. And this is a phenomenon unknown. And this is why the the Euhemerists that I mentioned here, Dr. Pilkey following them, uh, have argued for years that this is why gods and goddesses were worshipped in mythology. What they were doing was worshipping the powerful, the physical and intellectual capacities of these people. Well, if you turn in Genesis chapter 9, there's that incident that occurred in this first family. So we want to mention what is called the oracle of Noah. In Genesis chapter 9, first of all, the Bible could have given us the glories and the grandeur of Noah as the great nation builder. He could have done that. But the Holy Spirit chose instead to give us a detailed genealogy in Genesis 10, 11, and create this incident of Noah getting drunk, being naked, And having Ham, one of his sons, go in when he was naked and so forth and so on. And then he curses, not Ham, not Ham, but Canaan. There's a strange thing that goes on here. So we want to go through that tonight because it's preparatory to the final area uh, that I want to cover. So, we're talking about the family still, the reconstitution of the third divine institution. The family, after the flood, is given this unique privilege of founding the nations. All right. What happens here is Noah has a lapse. We call it the Noahic lapse. It's among scholars, it's called that. We just call it a a sinful incident. Two things to observe about this incident. One was that he drank of the wine and became drunk. Now, there's nothing wrong, per se, about wine, and I give you the references in the text. The point is, misuse of wine. And that alone shows the problem that misuse or proper use of the creation that God has given depends upon us always following his directions. So, right away, we have a genius a physical and intellectual genius compared to us. And he screws up because he is not wise in and of himself, in and of himself, as as, as great as these men were, these great founders of nations. They had no wisdom apart from God. And so right away you have a misuse of the creation through sheer folly. And then you have the temp, he the, became drunk and covered himself in, and uncovered himself in the tent and so on. Now, people read verse 22, 23, and then they wonder, well, why is the skip over to 25 and cursing Ham's son Canaan? Well, the answer is that God never curses a son for his father's sin unless the son continues in his father's sin. And that's why in the Ten Commandments, I am the God who visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and so forth, and so forth. Who was Canaan? Think about who would have read this Bible and this script. The answer is, the Jews were going into the land at the time Moses wrote Genesis. The Canaanites were depraved. And as I point out, in page 96, if you look at Dr. Ross's quote, on page, in the middle of page 96. As part of the theological justification for Israel's subjugation of the Canaanites, this passage had great significance. The Torah warned the people of the Exodus about the wickedness of the Canaanites in terms that called to mind a violation of Ham. The constant references to nakedness and uncovering in this passage in Leviticus, designating the people of Canaan as a people enslaved sexually, clearly reminds the reader of the action of Ham, the father of Canaan. No Israelite, and this is the key, no Israelite who knew the culture of the Canaanites could read the story of their ancestor without making the connection. Now, what is the point? The point is that tendencies in the first family, both with Noah and his sin of lapse, were going to be propagated down to his sons. In particular, one particular wart, one particular sin in that family, was going to develop. And it was going to come to fruition by the time this man lived. And it was going to become such an issue that this Subset of the Noaic races, of all the races and nations, this subset, the Canaanites, they were to be eliminated. And it's a picture of God's justice. That to save the rest of the human race, he annihilates this. This is this is a biblical genocide. No question about it. I mean, they can't apologize for it. It's there. But let's look carefully at it again. Uh, we, next year we'll deal with the Holy War issue. But the point is that we know, at least one Canaanite woman that married into the line of Jesus Christ. You know who she was? Rahab. So how do you explain the fact she survived? Answer, because she trusted in the Lord. Any person, in any one of these three lines who trusts the Lord would be free of the curse. It's quite clear from the Old Testament that worked that way. These are just generalized statements Saying that whenever the lineage, and Canaan was a particularly bad one, Canaanites were really uh, their uh, descendants in history, the Carthaginians were their descendants, the Phoenicians were their descendants. And uh, the the uh, Carthaginians were eventually wiped out by the Romans. And so, all down history, this line has been cursed because of a tendency that develops. Not because God has something against them. It's not that at all. It has the fact that that they have a sin tendency that has got to be dealt with either by faith or by extermination for the sake of everyone else. It's like a quarantine. Well, one other thing which we don't have time tonight to get into, I'm not intending to in this series. We will next year. We deal with the different nations that come out of these sons. That's a study in and of itself. However, we can say that each of these three sons have a role to play in history and Adam or the human race cannot be complete without all of them. If you look in a reference that I cite, and uh, I think it's on page 95, um, mid-paragraph, I just draw this attention to you in passing and check it out yourself. Out of this first post-flood family arose 70 nations. They're listed in Genesis 10. This pattern of 70 nations was designed by God to anticipate the pattern of 70 sons of the redeeming family of Jacob. Turn to Deuteronomy 32. A fascinating little reference here. It's one of those things you read quickly in the scriptures and pass right through and never think about. But think about this. Deuteronomy chapter 32.8. Why is this in the Bible? Strange note about the shape of history. In chapter 32, verse 8 of Deuteronomy, it says Look at this now. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He separated the sons of man, He set the boundaries of the people according to what number? according to the number of the sons of Jacob or the sons of Israel. Those were 70. And it's interesting and it's no coincidence that it's 70 nations also listed in Genesis 10 and 11. It means there's a pattern and a structure to history. See, we Westerners, we always think of statistics. We, we think of the human race as some sort of an incoherent blob uh, that's just statistically and randomly distributed around the continents. Well, we Americans, particularly, we do this because we Americans, we are. We're a melting pot. I mean, we've got every gene that no one ever thought of in this country. And, and that's the way we are. And we're a unique nation for that. But in many other nations, they're not. They're much more restrictive. Well, my um, Japanese daughter-in-law uh, takes us through Japanese call. You get off the plane in Tokyo and everybody's got black hair. And uh, and everybody's about this size, and everybody wears the same size dress. Wasn't it they said about going to a ladies dress shop and there's only three sizes? And so, I mean, it's every, very homogeneous, and this is just culturally stunning to, to a person like myself when I look around, and we have all, you know, big little people, fat people, thin people, every people. So. So we aren't used to that. But my point is that there's a structure in this thing, and every one of these sons has a strength. Every one of these sons has a weakness. And the interplay among these sons is the key to history. And Christ will not come again until he has representatives from all three of these. That's why in the book of Revelation, all the nations are represented there. There has to be a complete redemption in every sector of the Noah's family because that's an outworking of the covenant. See, this is a fantastic structure to history. And it also prevents all kinds of racisms from developing because you can't have pride of one race over another when they all came from the same boat. And it's precisely the loss of biblical absolutes and biblical narratives everybody laughs at and says, oh, it's all myth. Well, maybe you can think it's all myth, but watch what happens when you release control from this, and you go to some sort of statistical history, and all of a sudden you you get the problem of racism that's developed. Where does this come from? It comes from pride, pride in each one of these guys. Well, oh, they all, well, oh, every race has racism in it. It's just a sin. It's common in sin by all races. And so the Bible's answer to that is, wait a minute, we all have the genes of Adam and Eve, and in particular, we all share modern civilization, the genes of this one family. We all come from this one family. And the incident of the of the vineyard here and, the, and these kind of, you say, well, gee, God could have chosen to tell us about how they started pyramid building, uh, how they did the ziggurats, how they did irrigation, early medicine, the Egyptians were drilling teeth. We have cavities that are filled in the skulls of the pharaohs. We have uh, skull surgery being done, little holes in the skulls so it shows they were doing brain surgery uh, centuries before Jesus. Uh, we have all kinds of these inventions and technologies. Well, God could have chosen to do this, but the one thing He remembers is this little incident. Now, why this incident? The answer, as I say in page 96, is to give us a warning. So, if you look on the page 96, the last paragraph, before I talk about the New Divine Institution. By revealing this flaw in civilization's founding family, the Bible warns that cultural glory of the Noahic cosmos lacks spiritual life. Mighty though the Noahic nation-builders might be, impressive though their technological accomplishments appear, they were still fallen men in absolute need of spiritual salvation. Not only would their diet require the sacrifice of life, but descendants who unrepentantly followed in sin would themselves be sacrificed. Ham's sin, nurtured in Canaan, demanded that Canaan be one day exterminated. The Noahic family of nations would have to pass through a future purging of all unbelief, a purging yet to come on a global scale with the return of Christ. All right, now, as a result of all this and the result of the interplay of sin, we come to a a new divine institution that was not present prior to the flood. This is the fourth one, and we can develop, we can call it different names, kingly authority, or you can say kingdom authority if you wish. Uh, Another way of calling it is civil government, the power of civil government. And this was the introduction of capital punishment, which you had in the notes. And people object to this, but I want you to notice down the bottom of page 96 the quote from Genesis 9. It is very parallel to the commission to be carnivorous in diet, to go ahead and eat the meat, but the life of the flesh, um, you know, you drain out. Kosher type operation That's where kosher stuff started coming from doesn't mean every drop of blood has to be out. It's just a respectful way of the fact that you don't uh, chew an animal. It's just alive with all of its blood and guts and and just disregard. It's being sensitive to the fact an animal had to die that you might live. The whole Noahic cosmos is designed on the principle of substitutionary death. Now, we don't like that. But substitutionary death is a principle that applies to diet and it also recurs now with capital punishment. Read again in Genesis 9. Genesis 9, when God authorizes capital punishment, notice his reason for doing this. Whosoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And you say, well, oh, that's vengeance killing. No, it is not vengeance killing. Look at the context. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? There's an explanation. Here is the reason. For in the image of God, He made man. Now that is very difficult for a modern reader to understand why does God require capital punishment for murder? And the answer is given because every man or woman who is murdered was made in God's image. When you kill an animal to eat, you have to exercise respect for the animal, God says. An animal gave up their life for you. When a human being is killed, an image of God has been destroyed. We gave you a reference in in Daniel, where Daniel, remember that Nebuchadnezzar set up a a statue of himself and had everybody worship it. It was common in the ancient East. And it's a a mutilation of a true fact that God set up, as it were, a statue to himself. It's called man. And those who murder are basically come out. It's a hatred that has come to an enormous, powerful expression. And when that happens... What God says, I want murder to be judged. And when he does this, this is the central authorization of all civil power. The power of civil government rests not in a vote. Now, this is where we're going to differ here politically between the Bible and paganism. Paganism always wants to root government in rights or root government in votes or root government in constitutions. And they're all there, not knocking it. But we're saying when God instituted the authority to take life, that was the origin of civil government. The government may me do a lot of other things, but the basic function from the very beginning was the sword. Down at the bottom of page 97 we were going to go into this more next next week because we're not going to get over it because I have a guest here that I want him to share with us tonight. But I want you to read in the bottom of page 97 how this was remembered in pagan culture. The Sumerian kingless attest to the new dispensation of human government claiming that kingship descended from heaven after the flood. Many pagan nations remember this. They keep talking about kingship coming down from heaven, this descent of power was far more like the Christian Pentecost than we can imagine. Its universal Gentile symbol was the Ka sign, the pictographic image of a man with arms outstretched at the elbows. In Egyptian art, I can't draw, but uh, this is the form he's talking about. You will see figures in in the art with their hands up, and it looks like they're praising God. But if you look carefully at the art, they're not praising God because usually in the art, just above the head and the hands, you'll see something like this. And you'll usually see indications that the crown is descending. It's as though man is reaching up to receive this descending crown from heaven. And it it's all, it's, all permeates mythology. So what Pilkey is pointing out is just an observation that this act, whatever it was that occurred after the flood, was some sovereign, a bestowal of sovereign authority. We know that before the flood in Genesis 4, angels had the power of the sword. But it was not to be exercised against murderers. Because, remember, Cain murdered. What did God say? I will protect him. It is not, I am not giving you people the power to take life. Then after the flood, he says, I am giving you people the power to take life. Something changed. Something changed. And we're going to deal with that uh, as we get more into Psalm 82 and we get into some of the arguments for capital punishment. But tonight I've asked, as I asked Cindy Baxter a while back because she's an English teacher and she was into the thing of language when we were going through it. And I had her share some things to let you realize that what we're talking about here has repercussions in the real world. We're not talking about some fairy story out disconnected from reality here. The Bible is connected to the real world. So they asked Gary Settle, who was in the Baltimore County Homicide Group, to share some of his experiences as a policeman with the sin of murder. Gary?
1: Good evening. <clears throat> Most of you I have met, and some of you are, are new to me, but uh, I attend here Fellowship chaplain. And... Frankly, I've made it a practice over the years to try to forget the last uh, five or six years of, of my experiences. Um, but from 1990 until about four months ago, I was a supervisor in, in the homicide unit with Baltimore County Police. And uh, I thought after about 15, 16 years, I'd seen everything there was to see in human depravity. And uh, being coming from a Christian family in a rural section of Harford County, I, I've lived a very protected life. I'd come to realize, uh, and then after uh, 1990, uh, being asked to come in as to the homicide unit I began a whole new chapter of uh, discovery, and uh, it was amazing. It, it was absolutely amazing. It was it would, it's a kind of uh, shock, uh, al- almost on a at least a weekly basis that will take your sleep away from you. It will. Uh, it will cause you to have hypertension. It will it will do a lot of things to you, and it actually consumes the person who engages it, uh, What we have come to discover. But uh, just briefly, and I'm, I don't want to take but just uh, five minutes, uh, Charlie's asked me to share just a couple of uh, true stories with you, and uh, it wasn't hard to think of uh, three quick stories uh, just to kind of illustrate how depraved people can be. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, the Farmer's Bank in Randallstown, 1992, about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Three ladies were working there uh, as tellers, and uh, two young men. Uh, we found out later these young men both had college backgrounds, had a thriving business. Uh, their parents had, were affluent people in the community. They had bank accounts, disaccount at this particular bank. Uh, they walked in about 2:30 in the afternoon, announced a holdup, uh, Filed the three ladies into the vault and forced them to to lie down face face down in the vault, a small room about maybe six by six. Um, uh, They uh, removed the cash from the registers, and much of this is captured on film. Um, Removed the cash from the registers and then uh, walked over to the one of them. Walked over to the ladies and began systematically executing them in the backs of their heads. Mrs. Langmead and Mrs. George both died immediately from their injuries and the third lady whose name escapes me um, the the shot went through her neck into her shoulder and came out of her elbow Uh, and she was able to get to a phone Uh, another witness uh, outside the bank saw a car speeding away and uh, as uh, as the Lord had to orchestrate this, and, and we kind of acknowledged this back in the office later that evening. But there was two there were two plainclothes detectives who happened to be in, in the area heading toward the bank when the broadcast came out for the vehicle wanted connection with this bank robbery. And uh, as they were traveling toward the bank, they caught in the peripheral vision a car parked by a dumpster, and that, and, and there were two gentlemen changing clothes, throwing items into the dumpster. And uh, they turned on the car, coming come behind it and arrested these two gentlemen uh, within ten minutes of the incident. It was just one of those incredible cases that, uh, you know, in, in hindsight, we knew the Lord orchestrated that, those arrests. Um, that particular scenario, we, it just didn't add up to us how these young men with, uh, with good backgrounds, with solid educations, with a thriving business, uh, with no criminal history, could engage such an act. And I, I always tell folks I don't have to explain why I just have to explain what happened because I can never explain the depths of depravity would cause people to to do this to uh, to, to three ladies who were just doing their job I can't explain it uh, We did prosecute the principal uh, in that we both both were convicted We prosecuted the principal under the death penalty He had he got a change of venue to Harford County and the judge in Harford County. Uh, felt that there was reasonable doubt that he was in fact the trigger person because they were both covered in their masks. So he used that out to uh, spare this young man's life and gave him life without parole. Um, the, another tragedy within that story was that Mrs. George's uh, husband was working at the gas station next door, and uh, and uh, Charlie, I believe, uh, told me that he saw the, the uh, evening news that night and uh, saw a, a young child and... Uh, being held by his father crime there by the corner of that gas station or near the bank and that was uh, Mr. George and one of two sons that Mrs. George uh, left behind just a very tragic story I can't explain why these things happen uh, we generally handle about 40 homicides a year which is minimal compared to other jurisdictions but it kept us very busy um, another case comes to mind um, there was uh, we got the call one morning uh, at the office about 10 o'clock one morning of a, uh, a found found body in, a, in an apartment. And we got to the apartment in Essex. And uh, the st- here's how the story. Uh, in hindsight, this is how this is what occurred. A gentleman named Michael Reese, uh, estranged from his wife and two sons, uh, he had agreed to babysit the two sons while she went out in the night the night before. Something. During the course of her being out on the town, him being home with her two, with their two sons, something went on in his mind. We can only explain it in hindsight as this domestic passionate dominance that men tend to have over their, their wives and families. But uh, to make a long story short, when we arrived there the next morning, uh, Mrs. Reese was uh, stabbed Mobile Times line face-up in the living room of their, of the, of their home, uh, and then we proceeded to the second floor of the uh, townhouse, and we found two young boys there. Um, both young boys, they were about five and seven years of age. Both of the young boys uh, had their hands bound behind their backs, uh, duct tape around their faces, so they, presumably so they could not scream, and both boys were stabbed in the chest um, multiple times. This was his own flesh and blood. Uh, some of our detectives uh, had a problem dealing with that, uh, and which happens frequently when children are involved because most of us have small children, and we identify you know with that event and it's, it's uh, oftentimes we have to bring some fresh people in or give people a break and get them away from it for a couple of hours, go let them get a cup of coffee, go for a walk because you know you identify this as your children, particularly if they 're of the same. Uh, sex or race, and, and you know, the, the identity is very strong in those situations. Uh, one last story, and uh, um, I'll sit down. Um, another tragic story that comes to mind uh, that was a case of domestic dominance, uh, essentially, and his uh, fears or his paranoia, if you will, that his wife was out with someone else. She didn't arrive home until about four in the morning, and something tripped this guy. It took about two weeks to turn him up. Uh, we got him th- using america 's most wanted and uh, he was he was downtown hiding with a new friend he had made and and she finally came forward and gave him up. Uh, the last story i 'll tell you is uh, from another direction it it uh, every year in in that unit things became more and more violent uh, and we began to see uh, we've begun to see over the last two years a predator kind of criminal. Um, it's particularly associated with the drug trade, but these people, uh, th- this predator criminal preys on other drug dealers and essentially what they do is they identify soft core drug dealers and they'll ki- actually kick their door in or they'll, they'll shoot them down in cold blood and take their drugs. They prey on other drug dealers and uh, other- under the presumption that dr- one drug dealer is not going to complain if he gets robbed, obviously. So. The police aren't going to be involved in that situation because um, it's a, another drug dealer complaining about another drug dealer. So they, pr- they prey on each other. Uh, this particular scenario came home to Baltimore County in uh, the winter before last. Uh, got a call one morning of uh, a gentleman named John Temple. He lived, lives in the Parkville area. John and his wife Lorraine, a uh, quiet young couple, just had moved into, just had been married, moved in, had their own apartment. Uh, both of them working, uh, young young couple, both of them working hard. Uh, John went out to start his car uh, on a cold, I believe it was a December 4th morning of uh, 1994. And he uh, uh, his car was found running about 9.30. And th- that uh, spawned some phone calls to check on his well-being. And upon checking, John was found <coughs> in his apartment um, he, he uh, also his uh, his feet were bound by shoestrings. His hands were bound behind his back. He uh, his mouth was duct taped. He had a plastic bag over his head. It was steamed up inside, indicating that he had suffocated. He had a couple of superficial stab wounds to to his neck. And then into the the around the corner and in the kitchen area, we found Lorraine, his wife, had met a similar uh, demise. Uh, her her bag was not fogged up, however, and her throat was cut more deeply. But essentially, as we began began to understand, they had been targeted by predator uh, uh, drug rip-off types, and uh, they had agreed to store a small quantity of drugs at their apartment uh, in exchange for money from a friend. And because they had stored that quantity of drugs there, they became, became targeted by these predators and uh, decided to to, uh, to hit them for their for their drugs and essentially that's why they died their crime and this was storing a small quantity of drugs for a friend uh, and they died because of that um, but i again i can't explain uh, i could tell you stories all night long i just do not i'd rather hear charlie teach uh, but the depravity of, uh, you know it, why would the lord put me in a situation to experience all that i don't understand that maybe in some day Uh, I will, but up until uh, about four months ago, that was the job I did. And um, now I'm in a little softer job, so I may spend more time at home. But uh, thank you, Charlie, for the opportunity to share this.
0: Well, that's the outworking of sin in the human race. And this is why the Lord has given and has commissioned civil government to exercise authority. What I want to do in the rest of our time is start with Genesis 4, uh, where the sword first appears, or Genesis 3, where the sword first appears, and walk you through some of the key passages in the Bible uh, as to who has his hand on the sword's handle. Turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So, originally, it appears that angels had, at least these angels did, had the authority of enforcing God's laws. Now, whether it is so, and this is, again, speculation, whether it is true that it was because of this authority that led to the problems I'm going to show you or not, we can't tell. But if you turn to chapter 4 of Genesis, and in verse 13 and 14, where Cain, the first murderer, by the way, it didn't take long for the human race to learn how to murder. Uh, The first son in the first family uh, was the world's first murderer. So it's been around a long time. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. See, he was he was exiled to a nomadic existence. Behold, thou hast given, driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from thy face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a vagrant and a wanderer, and it will come that whosoever finds me will kill me. Now, that's an interesting statement. Why did he say that? Because no government had been given. It was a fact that there is an inherent moral revulsion in the conscience over murder. Just an inherent moral revulsion. And Cain realized that and their consciences were a lot more sensitive than ours because they were a lot closer to the point of creation. Then in verse 15, we have this strange statement. Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken upon him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign lest anyone finding him should slay him. So at that point, there is no exercise of a sword in judgment against the sin of murder. Well, let's go further. We have the strange passage in chapter 6 where it says that the angels, verse 2, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, they took wise of themselves wherever they choose, and so forth and so on. And uh, verse 4, the Nephilim were in the earth in those days. And we mentioned in passing, it's a difficult passage, but um, it seems pretty clear from the, from the Hebrew language that you have some sort of an intermarriage going on here between angels who had, had materialized and human females. And what was going on, we have no, you know, no details. Though in 1 Peter 3, we're told that when Jesus died, he descended to hell, but it's not hell. In 1 Peter chapter 3, it says that Jesus went to a place called Tartarus. And Tartarus is used in the Greek language for the for lower, lower areas of hell. So Jesus, if this is the ground, Jesus descended in his spirit and he went to this place called Tartarus. Maybe we might turn that passage, First Peter chapter 3. We have a, again one of these mystery passages in the Bible. It's so tantalizing, and, he, and it goes through so fast, and it just leaves you. But in 1 Peter 3:18, Christ died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which also, that is, in the spirit, he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. It's a strange passage, but it appears that he went and he made an announcement. It's not the word for preaching the gospel here, it's just an announcement. That he went here and there were certain spirits that were incarcerated in Tartarus. And when Jesus was successful on the cross and died, he went down there and made an announcement. Theologians have speculated, what was the announcement? And the best speculation you can come up with is, I made it. You people tried to stop me. You people tried to interrupt the flow of redemption in human history, but I made it. it was, it's a victorious proclamation of the fact that the cross was successful, which then, by way of implication, makes you think that perhaps the angelic beings and whatever was going on in the, in the days of the flood, there was a far more diabolical agenda going on than maybe at first appears. That perhaps this was sort of a genetic manipulation to destroy humanity itself and prevent God from incarnating in a genuine human body. This could be. So, we have these strange things, and I I mention these only to show, and there's also a common passage in Jude, to show that something happened at the time of the flood to cause the establishment of this new institution. And it was this new institution that particularly was given the authority to take the sword that previously only angels could wield and begin to use that sword. So we turn now to Romans chapter 13 because it's a New Testament passage. And people often say, but this was Old Testament. That Old Testament so fierce. But in the New Testament, it isn't. Not at all. The fourth divine institution of civil government continues in New Testament times. And in Romans chapter 13, Verse 4 is the classic statement. For it is a minister of God to you. And he's talking about the rulers. And he's talking about civil authorities. Not talking about the church here. These aren't the elders. It's not the church. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. And then it adds an interesting statement. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So, civil government acts as an addition to, on the inside, you have inner conscience, which is the uh, thing that corresponds to God's holiness in the, in the spirit of man, you have on the inside conscience, but conscience alone was insufficient to prevent the domination of society by evil. So the answer to the grand experiment before the flood is that anarchy, that is minimum government, no government authority, yields mob violence. Always has. Anarchy will always yield mob violence. And that's what happened prior to the flood. Total out-of-control mess. And people can say and resent it. They can resent the military. They can resent the police all they want to. But every time you see a policeman, every time you see a soldier, you are watching civil power. They are the civil power. And it is a reminder, just as every time you eat a piece of meat that this civilization since Noah's day people die in order that life might go on and the life of the murderer is taken in order that the life of everybody else be saved very clear cut that that's the justification of the scripture and may disagree with it but that's what the scripture says and we're left there now if we come over to Um, page 98, we'll talk just a little bit about arguments and objections to capital punishment. (coughs) There are three arguments advanced against capital punishment. And by the way, the argument against capital punishment is also the argument against just war, the idea of, of the military. The three arguments are and paragraph, third paragraph. I never forget. I was in a trial one time. it was called to jury duty. It wasn't a murder trial, but it was something else, and a robbery or something. <laughs> the attorney for the uh, suspect were said they were going through the quiz, you know, of the jury. And of course, if they hear you're a fundamentalist, Bible-believing person, that guarantees you will not be on the jury. But anyway, he got to me, and we were talking about something, and and he said. Uh, Mr. Klopp, can you forego your religious convictions and be objective? And I really got frosted with this little approach. And I was just about to say, can you, as an attorney, lay aside your prejudice to be objective? But fortunately, the the judge was right there, and he interrupted the attorney. And he says, that question is out of line. You cannot ask any juror to give up his religious and ethical convictions. Wow, that's interesting. Didn't make the jury, but that's all Um, right. The three arguments are, one, it doesn't deter evil. And they will present all kinds of statistical arguments that it doesn't deter evil. The second one is that it cannot be administered justly. That's probably the most powerful, ans- powerful thing that most people believe. The poor are less able to defend themselves, and that's a fact. I mean, these guys have got the big box always get the big attorneys, and they always get off. The greatest thing that could happen in our country would be some of the white-collar criminals get put away like some of the poor kids on the street. And then we'd understand a little bit more about what justice is all about. The third one is... It is sub-Christian ethically. And here's where a lot of Christians weigh in. Now, there are answers to these. The answer to the first one, it would deter evil if it were conducted as God intended with fair and speedy purpose. It doesn't do much of a thing to kill somebody in the electric chair 14 years and 25 appeals after so-and-so met their and their their death in in a crime think Gary was telling me in this bank robbery here the police walk in and the blood is about a half an inch deep all over the floor in that vault. I mean, come on. So, the point is that if you watch how capital punishment was administered in the Old Testament, it actually was controlled very well. They had a little... God, when he set up the Mosaic, if we believe God is the author of Scripture, it does us well today when we're thinking about legislation is to study is to study how the Mosaic legislation worked, never mind how cruel it was. There are a lot of merciful provisions in there. And one of the things was that you couldn't be convicted of murder without an eyewitness. Uh, So they they had controls. Another point was that the witness had to be the first one to throw the rocks to kill them. And that meant that you better be sure that you're not committing perjury here, fella, because now look what you're doing. So there were a number of interesting provisions in the Mosaic Code and it had to be speedy. Um, One of the interesting experiences I had recently was going to Williamsburg and you know how that you go in there and it's like going in a time machine and they have history professors play roles role playing and Carol and I went into this one room and um, there was a fascinating guy there. He was a professor of history at some college around here. I just knew that because he was so good on, on mimicking what was going on in the 1700s. And uh, some lady raised the question, well, what do you do about rehabilitating criminals? And uh, that was just the answer. This, just the, you could just tell this guy. Oh, lady, you just walked in. A, you made my day. And so she, he says, he looks at her. He puts on this act. And he looks up at her with a surprised look and he says, Madam, in this colony, Virginia, we are free men. And part of being a free man is that you are fully responsible for your actions. And therefore, we, and he went on about speedy trials. He says, in our colony at the present time, it was 1770 or something, or 1760. In our uh, trial at present time, our trials last usually no more than 30 minutes. We present evidence. Uh, We sequester the jury without food, water, or relief, if you know what I mean. And we generally get verdicts within five to ten minutes. And uh, he went on and on and on. And this lady just wouldn't give up. She kept asking these questions. So finally he he looked up above his glasses and he said, Madam, what country do you come from? (laughs) Um, But anyway, it was kind of interesting to watch. Well, the capital punishment argument, uh, the, first, the answer is that it would deter evil if it were conducted as God intended. But it has to be fair, it has to be speedy. And it can't be... And, oh, and the other thing this man pointed out, which I didn't realize about Virginian law, was that the penalties were in proportion to your place in society. The wealthier were, the longer the sentence. Because they figured that if you were wealthy and robbed, you did it for sheerly malicious purposes. And I thought that was an interesting inversion that from today's law. But, uh, but the law in the Mosaic law, if it were done, and we know that it, even Israel never followed it perfectly, uh, it probably would have deterred. The second answer, and this is a very interesting one, that it doesn't deter evil or cannot be administered justly. Uh, look at point two in that paragraph. It was given for a fallen world, so obviously God believes it is necessary justly carried out or not. Now, God foreknew, for example, of the death of his own son through a miscarriage of justice when he established it. Now think about that. Is God omniscient? Of course. When God established civil power, did he or did he not know that his own son would be capitally punished through a sheer bedlam in the court? Absolute misjudgment, wrong use of evidence, corruption the, among the judges, collusion among the witnesses. Everything went wrong in that trial. His own son would die and be capitally punished through a misapplication of capital punishment. And to me, that's the answer to the question. We strive, we ought to, as, as any responsible citizen, we ought to strive to make it just But to argue that it itself could never be just and is absolutely wrong violates this principle. God must not have known what he was doing then. And three, it is directly sanctioned by Jesus and the apostles for the present time. And I give you all the New Testament references. Look at the references. Don't try to make up what you think the Bible says. Just read the references. Of course, no one likes capital punishment, but the issue is what God has installed and assigned for our present fallen civilization deriving from Noah and the covenant. And we will continue from there as we get into the kingship issue. And on the handout uh, that we gave you tonight, you'll notice that so we end the chapter and there is, on the, in the conclusion, uh, I have some review questions on page 102. And I'd like it, if you would look at those review questions, uh, they're matching. They only are just matching. And uh, it's not one-to-one. Some of them match up to two, and some match up to one, and so on. But think through, on the left side, are various situations of our modern day. On the right side are some things we've looked at over the past uh, four or five months. And I'd like it if you started thinking about that. And i like some little discussion next week. So if you could be prepared to have some discussion about why you would meet, for example, a tragic accident that appears meaningless, how would you deal with that based on the information we've covered? What are some passages of Scripture? And most of all, what are some pictures? Remember we said one of the great neat things about the Old Testament is it tells stories that a child can learn. And it's those stories that fill your imagination with tools, spiritual tools to cope with these kind of situations. So what we want to do is see if we can improve ourselves by meeting these kinds of situations based on the content of what we've learned in Scripture. And uh, as I say, next week we'll we'll deal with that and then we'll start handing out the four appendices. First one, uh, one, try to go through those one a week and we'll be done. Father, thank you for our time tonight. We thank you for, for... The work of Christian policemen like Gary, just out on the front line all the time, and we thank you for the protection uh, that we do enjoy in our country. And we think of the many places on the earth right tonight where people are being robbed, killed, raped, and uh, cut down mercilessly because there is no civil order. And we thank you for the restraint, and we thank you for the sword we ask this in, th- in in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his for his blessing and glory. Amen. Glenn's going to start. <laughs> at
1: what point, and Danny Roush gave us the scripture, mercy, mercy, mercy overcomes judgment, at what point as Christians should we not root for the capital punishment but
0: have mercy on a murderer because they may be saved How do you? Okay, good question. The question is, as a Christian, where does grace uh, ameliorate justice in the sense of having mercy on, say, a murderer because he might become a Christian? Um, I think if you look at the whole spirit of the Mosaic Law Code in its most fierce area, um, which is the unholy war. Uh, I'm trying to think of the worst of all possible executions. Uh, Holy war was an extermination of men, women, and children, period. I mean, it was a mass slaughter. The Jews were uh, obligated to do it, whether they liked it or not, and if they didn't do it, then they were judged. It was nasty business. In the middle of that holy war, there stand certain stories so that as you look at Numbers and Deuteronomy, when the Holy War was going on, the Holy Spirit drew attention to people like Rahab into marrying with Caleb and Joshua. Now, what, is, what are these stories telling us? The Book of Ruth is another example. Ruth was a, was a Gentile. Why was she not only spared in the Transjordanian campaigns, but why did she enter, come into the very messianic line by marriage? And the answer that you get from the stories is that in all of those cases, there were people who responded in faith, regardless of their past sins. I'm, just, I'm not saying this is the guideline, I'm saying it's an A guideline. That looking at how the Holy Spirit describes history, when he was asking people to go execute other people, it's interesting that the other people that were being executed were spared when they bowed their knee to Jesus Christ, or to, as he was known in the Old Testament. That's one, I think, pertinent part of Revelation that works with this problem. Another part, uh, I think, has to do even with those who become Christians. In in, in um, history, you can read, and particularly 200 years ago or 100 years ago, the role of the chaplain in, in uh, dealing with murderers was to lead them to Christ to prepare them to die. The, the evangelistic motive wasn't wasn't stopped because the guy was sentenced to a crime. The evangelism continued, and with all the more urgency, because he was going to die. The work of the chaplain wasn't to gain a stay of execution. The work of the chaplain was to prepare the man to die. And that has largely been changed in the modern system where we get all kinds of, of uh, religious motives for trying to undo capital punishment as an institution. And I think the other thing is, like I said, in the Mosaic Law Code, and, and this man that played that role in the, at, at uh, Williamsburg kind of said the same thing, that where you had what we call simple, straightforward law codes, the punishments were meted out quickly, but there were an awful lot of no, I won't say not mistrial. What do you call it when they're... Um, what is it when they can't get a conviction? Acquittal. Acquittal. There were an awful lot of acquittals in early colonial America. Like this man said, I mean, the acquittal rate was up to about 80%. Now Why did they have so many acquittals? And people say, well, gee, they had lenient justice. Well, it really wasn't that. It was the fact that when they had a conviction, they carried it out. And because they knew that the punishment was going to be quick and severe, they were very cautious about ever applying it unless it was absolutely certain. But if it was absolutely certain, they did it. And it appears that that itself is a deterrent. Um, We forget that in New England, uh, I read this in preparation for that, that text, in New England colonies, they briefly, toward the end of the Puritan era, passed a law that said they inaugurated the Mosaic Law Code that any teenage delinquent who rebelled against his father and mother would be executed anywhere in Massachusetts Bay Colony, period. They just eliminated them. And the argument was that this is the only way we can build a healthy society. If they can't understand what authority is in the home, then they never are going to understand it, so we'll just get rid of them right now, save society a lot of trouble later. and it's interesting that people pull up that old Massachusetts law and they say, "See, those Puritans were very, very cruel people." But then you look at history; not once did it ever have to be, not once did it ever have to be exercised. During it was only in on the books, I think, for about 10, 12 years. But historians point out that just the fear of the thing uh, had a deterrent effect. Because they knew that in those days, when you talked about a conviction, you were talking about a conviction. There wasn't any appeals, none of this appeal process. So you better get it right the first time. So there was, it's almost like the scriptures are saying you don't have to kill every murderer, you know, that there might be extenuating circumstances and so on. It's, It's just that the principle has to be in place and carried out enough. So that there's a deterrent effect, and that just seems to be the spirit of the Mosaic Law, because David committed a capital crime under the Mosaic Law, but he was spared. Uh, and you can argue, well, maybe it was because there was no, there were no outside of Bathsheba, there was no eyewitnesses to the crime. Um, there were officers implicated in his order that he transmitted through the command structure of the army to put uh, her husband into a. Bonafide area. I mean, obviously the officers knew that ordered his unit into that action. So there's that case, and there's like I say, Rahab and the Book of Ruth become very critical. The little Book of Ruth is sandwiched right in during that time period, and it's a it's a it's a validation of how Gentiles could become part of the Commonwealth of Israel, which if you just read the straightforward facts of the Mosaic Law, that seems like an impossibility. Because, remember, it said the Moabites can't be part of the congregation and so forth, and yet here's Ruth. Well, what do you do with that? Uh, and the answer appears that it's because God recognizes that he will respond to genuine conversion and faith. Whether the civil structure responds to that, like I said, is a whole other story because you've got two institutions. Remember, you always, this is what is hard for us as Christians. We have to remember there are two institutions, and they're not the same. And when you mix these two, you always get in trouble. There's the civil government and there's the church. The two are not the same. That's where there's a bona fide doctrine of separation. Not in what you believe. This country's got it all wrong. They try to separate ideas, like creationism is religious and evolution is scientific, they say. And so, that therefore, the idea of creation, that can't be permitted because of the violation of separation of church and state. But basically, the separation of church and state is organizationally. The church is not to dictate to the government how, when, and where. It's to teach the population at large, and then when the population people at large who have had experience in the church take positions of civil authority, presumably they are going to exercise righteousness. But the church, as the church, doesn't speak that way. That was the big debate among and, and historians got this one screwed up from time to time. They always think of John Calvin, for example. They go, oh, well, John Calvin, he ruled Geneva. Well, no, he didn't. You can read about John Calvin. John Calvin taught the men who ruled Geneva. But John Calvin didn't rule Geneva. And historians who are experts in that area tell us that there were great debates where his own students came back and said, Calvin, you're wrong. And I don't care what you taught me. This is the way Geneva is going to be run. So it's not true that the church pull the strings of the civil authorities. It is true that they pull the strings indirectly because they taught godly precepts that were then reflected. But there's a separation between the two. So, when you come to capital punishment and criminals uh, in jail, you've got the church's ministry to those people, which is to lead them to Christ, to edify their souls. But it's the civil government that dictates their destiny. And you you have to be careful. You can't mix those two. And the only time it's mixed is when Jesus returns. And it's interesting. He returns under the guise of a king with a sword. I can't read the book of Revelation without realizing that Jesus capitally executes. There's blood in his garment. He comes back with a sword. And he says, I will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now, what on earth does that mean other than civil power? He will exercise civil power. Power. There's not a time ever when that power, from that time it was instituted, isn't going to be deployed. It's just that we resent it because we see imperfect government. Sure. We are imperfect, so we don't like to be called to task. And nobody likes it because we don't like it because we're all sinners. But in the throne room of God, there's order. And that's why when Isaiah looks into the throne of God and he sees the cherubs I mean, the the seraphs, you know, they're closing their their eyes before. I mean, there's an order there. You know, people aren't dancing. Hey, God, you in today? I mean, you know, that's just not seen in these theophanies. Uh, So there's an inherent authority just because of him. And that's a reflection. So you can look upon the institution of kingly authority uh, in, in Noah's time as a prelude to revealing more about the Lord Jesus Christ because when he is, comes again, he's going to come as a king, not just as a savior. So right now, the, the tendency is to interpret Jesus as some sort of a, a hippie left over in the city. You see the art forms. They look like some fossil from the 60s or something. Uh, and some little impotent soul, some little innocent. And that is unfortunate because it's a, it's a misinterpretation of the fact that he showed up not as king but as savior the first time. And it's, a, it's going to be totally a shock to anybody who thinks that way when he shows up the second time and now he's wearing a new hat. And this isn't going to be savior this time. So... Those two functions, see, are separated even with the advent of Christ. So the church is mirrors one side and civil government mirrors the yet to come. Civil government is yet to be fulfilled in a godly way. It is going to be. It's not going to be abandoned. And I think that's something we as Christians have to understand. Civil authority is never going to go away. It's going to become godly with Jesus, but it will not go away. The, the tendency always is to think of of heaven is some sort of place that goes back before the flood into an anarchistic state and everybody's happy and there's no authority. It doesn't work that way. Because every, every, the, the Bible goes forward, it doesn't go backward in history. That's a lost era, never going to be repeated. So, civil government, the institution was a profound moment in, in history. And it all hangs to do with civil government. And the reason why a lot of the opposition to, It's a litmus test. The opposition to capital punishment today is is tied in a lot, not with Christian ethics, because a lot of the people who are against capital punishment aren't Christians, you notice. If they are in the church, they're usually from the liberal side. So something ought to warn us that the basis for that opposition is not really concern for Christian ethics. It's something else that's going on here. And there's something else that's going on, I think, is the humanist impulse that man is inherently innocent. And that it's so wrong to hold man that accountable. To take one's life is to hold him absolutely accountable. And I think it's a resentment against being held accountable that's behind a lot of this opposition. This is why... um, those of us who who have been in the military for any length of time deeply resent um, people like our president who we feel did not oppose war as for example the Mennonites in Pennsylvania. As a military person I can I can have very great empathy for a pacifist, a genuine pacifist who in principle, I, I think he's wrong and I'll debate him on scripture, but I can accept him because he's doing it out of a principle that applies in every situation. But this selective draft dodging that goes on uh, is deeply offense <coughs> to those of us who, who are in the military because we feel like <coughs> that's just <coughs> arbitrary copping out um, when you just don't feel like personally uh, being responsible. So that's the, the military side and the police function are the two most visible forms of civil government. The, the judge and the laws are very deeply reflective of God himself. This is why, I've pointed out several times, that you know we learn in school there are three parts of government. There's the executive, there's judicial, and there's the legislative. And when you read the Old Testament, one of those is missing. Very interesting. There's an executive and there's a judiciary. Where's the legislative? Not one point is there any legislative in the Bible other than on Mount Sinai. And who then was the legislator? And was it this function then that God separated completely from man? Man was left to obey the law, not make it. So that in itself sort of tells you how important lawmaking is. And we approach it so cavalierly in this country. that It's, it's, it's whatever the vote says or what the latest radio talks show. We forget. We're trying to articulate genuine law should be reflective of God's transcendent absolutes. And what we have degenerated to in this country is a group of nitpicking little codes where everybody violates it. We're all sinners. We've all violated some phase of bureaucratic law. And it's, it's, it's almost like there's an agenda to make us all guilty. And then we owe everything to the government as to save us, say. And that's it. Too. I see it all the time in federal bureaucracy. The bureaucratic law codes, I'm sure those of you in business see this, the bureaucracy and the law codes are so convoluted that you can't obey one without disobeying the other. I mean, there literally are cases like this. You can't be guiltless. And that's how far we've gotten away from the idea of the law as, an, as a revelation of God's simplicity. God only made ten commandments. Six hundred and ten case cases are are in the Old Testament, but ten basic principles. Not 115, not 8,000 pages, not a room full of books, just ten. That's all, ten. So there's simplicity there. It's not that hard. So um, it's one of the fascinating things we'd like, I'd like to get into in the fall next year is when we deal with the, the laws of Moses because there are, there's so many, so many practical things like every elder man in the village could be a judge. Now think about that for a minute. What separates you and I from being a judge or something? Well, gosh, we have to have a law degree or, gee, we have to go before the bar. Well, why do you have to go before the bar? Because the law is so complicated, it takes you that long to figure out what you're doing. Why then in, in New England and in Virginia did they have people off the street involved not just in the juries, but also passing sentence? That's a fascinating study. It was because the law was simple. It was clearly perceivable by anybody and everybody. And today it isn't. So that those are the things that have mished up the, the whole the whole pot is so screwed up that when you deal with capital punishment, it's got all these peripheral things, like a pulling something out, and it's got cobwebs attached to every area. So you can't isolate the capital punishment issue from how screwed up we are in every other area compared to what God would have us from, from the Moses time. I have to just keep going back and say, if God designed a society, maybe i ought to look at how he designed that society. All of it may not apply today, but surely he designed the society with omniscience in mind and wisdom. So why don't we learn lessons? And when I look there, we see capital punishment. And we see that as the final statement. Um, In answer to what Glenn started our discussion tonight, uh, there's another passage that just came to my mind. And that is the sin of Achan. If you read the book of Judges, watch how Joshua applies the sentence of capital punishment. It's very interesting, it's done with mercy. Eventually, Achan is killed. And it's about Joshua 8 or 9, somewhere in there. I think it's 8. And you watch when they come to trial what Joshua does and his appeal to that to Achan who had committed a capital offense. And watch how Joshua works with him. It's a very merciful passage. Joshua's trying to get him to acknowledge his responsibility and sin. And then he's killed. And you can you can just hear the ha-ha and the guffaws today if you mention that. Well, ha-ha, you know, totally missing the point. What was Joshua trying to do here? He was trying to minister the fact that that man should confess his sin before him and before God and deal with it. And then we can get on with life. If we kill him, we kill him. If we don't, we don't. But that was the issue there. So it's a, it's another passage that you can kind of think about. But I would suggest, if you if you are troubled with capital punishment, or you just want to think it through further. Is you really need to think through what you see in the time of the holy war, and by that I look Book of Numbers and the first part of the Book of Deuteronomy, up to about Deuteronomy 12, and part of Numbers, and you'll see how the worst of all possible capital punishments was carried out and the mercy that accompanied it. Then read some sections of the Code of Deuteronomy, from Deuteronomy chapter 21 on, where you deal with the court procedures. Watch particularly how they dealt with evidence, how they dealt with witnesses, how they refused to allow a court or trial to take place near a grove of trees. And you say, well, what is that doing in the Mosaic Law? Because the grove of trees were centers where idols were. And idols would corrupt a sense of justice. And it shows that religious false beliefs affect your view of law. And therefore, the court could not convene anywhere near the groves of trees. There was a separation there. And it was because of contamination of the court. So, amazing passages in there. And I just urge you to just read those because there's lots of lessons that we can learn, I think, today. Henry. Interesting point. Yeah. Well, that's why the that, that conviction for murder in the scriptures is pretty well protected by good rules of evidence. It's, it's just good court procedures, and that's what you read about in the Mosaic Law. And half the time we just don't have good court procedures. I mean, uh, you know, people like Gary, they do their job, they try to collect the evidence. And you know, it must be very frustrating to have to spend hours and hours and hours on these cases, and then you go in a courtroom and uh, and it's all gone. I don't know how you guys keep doing your job. It seems like the judge has his set of principles that are totally different from everyone else's, and then the jury operates on the other totally different set of principles from what everyone else is. How in the world can you ever gonna have a system like that? Well, we look at we look at capital punishment and courts through our american eyes just remember that the way we do courts are not necessarily the way it's done in other places so so we also have to temper the fact that these are principles that are culturally applied in different ways abraham had the power of the sword for his own family he had the power to kill hagar Uh, the patriarchs had that power within their their own city because they were the founders of the city, the hir in Hebrew, and they were the city's founders and the elders of the city. At the same time, they were probably father of most of the people in the city. So it was kind of a dual role between family and civil power, but they were very close in those days. Well, We've exceeded our time at 9 o'clock. Next week, we'll go ahead and uh, try to finish up this... um, And if you'd look at those questions, I think they'll provoke some discussion.